Thanks, Jeff, and uh, thanks to the uh, tech team as well, working hard behind the scenes there. Not sure exactly what's happened, but uh, thankfully my uh, very elaborate multimedia presentation can continue with two uh, excellent slides this morning, so I hope you will enjoy them. Uh, thanks to the guys working hard back there. Uh, my name's Cam Maxwell. If we haven't met, I'm uh, the campus pastor here at, at Trinity Church Tonsley, and, and just add my welcome to Kelly's. Great to have you with us. Uh, and just invitation to keep your Bibles open for the next little while as we look at that together, especially if the screen does uh, go offline again. But as it is good practice, keeping, keeping the Bibles open uh, as, we, as we spend some time in it together. Well, as times have changed in Australia in the last 50 years or so, has changed from a place where most people uh, used to generally agree on living by Christian principles uh, to being now what we can describe as being an increasingly post-Christian place, uh, there's now not only widespread disagreement, but actual outright rejection of Christian thinking on all kinds of very important issues, uh, like what it means to be human. Uh, how do we decide between right and wrong? So Christians of our generation have to think harder about how to relate with our wider culture than perhaps some generations that have gone before us. Um, some have argued, often quite loudly and in kind of grumpy ways, that what we should be doing as Christians is standing up and fighting, uh, getting engaged in a war of culture, really, us against them, uh, perhaps inspired by the likes of John the Baptist and uh, the Old Testament prophets. Um, this involves sort of calling out, condemning publicly uh, those who have, in our society, moved away from good and precious things uh, that Christians hold dear, uh, things like the sanctity and preciousness of marriage, um, good things that Christians are saying, no, no, non-Christians should be doing things the way we think they should. Uh, we should be calling them out and condemning them uh, and getting them to adopt our moral view. So that's one way people have approached uh, interacting with culture around us. Uh, others have argued not so much to fight against culture, but for Christians just to keep our heads down, stay away from culture as much as possible. Um, the idea here is to not put a target on our backs, uh, but instead sort of withdraw into Christian kind of circles, uh, Christian bubbles, the more extreme examples we see of this are those who head into monasteries uh, or communes, uh, closed communities. Uh, though, of course, what can be Christian and what can be a cult can very quickly merge in that kind of uh, that sort of area. A mate of mine is an architect, and uh, he told me he saw a job recently uh, for a non-profit organisation, and he thought, oh, that's interesting, I might check that out. I wonder what kind of non-profit organisation needs an architect. Uh, he looked into it and he found out it was a group called the Closed Brethren. I'm uh, not sure if you're uh, familiar with these guys. I don't know a lot about what they believe, uh, but they do seem to be much more on the cult end of the spectrum, as far as I can tell. Uh, as my friend said, as he looked into these things, they actively discourage socialising with outsiders. So members of this church, or cult perhaps, uh, they actively discourage socialising with outsiders. I don't think he's going to take the job. Now, even if Christians in Australia aren't signing up to, you know, literally join monasteries or to join the Amish somewhere or something like that, I think what can happen in practice, though, is we can end up just hanging out with our church friends, uh, spending time with our good Christian friends, socialising people who with people who believe the same things as us, and kind of putting all our relational energy into those kind of relationships. That is, we end up living in a Christian bubble, uh, no matter what we think about how to relate with the outside world. There's two options. The third option here, what to do in a post-Christian world, is not to go around fighting, uh, not about fighting culture. It's not about pulling up the drawbridge and just kind of surviving in isolation by ourselves. The third option is to be right in the thick of our culture, right in the midst of it. And for those who know the Bible well, uh, it probably won't surprise you to hear me say that this is the consistent theme of the New Testament, what we're told and urged to do, that Christians are to live as Christians uh, fully engaged in the world around us. That's, of course, uh, full of challenge and complexity, uh, but we're not the first generation to have to think through these things carefully and see how they work out in practice. 
Uh, we've been looking through the book of Titus for the last uh, few, uh, few weeks. Uh, it's the Apostle Paul's letter to his deputy, his apprentice, Titus, uh, who he sent to the beautiful island of Crete. It's a place that's actually only really just been touched by the good news of Jesus. There's not, uh, not at all a Christian culture. Uh, there's just small pockets of Christians meeting together all around the island, uh, and they're very much uh, uh, in a culture that's not Christian. So this letter to Titus has Paul's strategy. It's Paul's strategy to impact Crete with the life-changing news about Jesus. And the strategy we've seen as we work through this letter involves, in chapter 1, Titus is first to get good leaders uh, in the, for the tiny churches scattered around the islands, uh, to make sure that the truth of Jesus has a firm hold on the lives of everyone in the church, especially the leaders. Then in chapter 2, the focus has really been on how the truth of Jesus plays out in our home lives, in our sort of personal lives. Uh, life in chapter 3 uh, is a focus not so much on the church or the home life. Chapter 3, Paul gets us to focus outside the doors of the home uh, and outside of the church and see how the truth about Jesus impacts our lives uh, in the wider world. Now, Crete, as uh, Paul wrote to Titus here, was under Roman rule. Uh, most likely, as Paul was writing, it's probably the period of uh, the Emperor Nero. Uh, if you know anything about Nero, he was a pretty horrible guy in every measure. Alongside that, the Cretans, uh, those who lived on the island, they had a bit of a reputation uh, of not really being very easy for the Romans to rule. Uh, they're always launching insurrections and riots. Uh, and so with that in mind, have a look with me again at chapter 3, verse 1. As Paul tells Titus, chapter 3, verse 1, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Now, just for clarity here, Paul's talking about authorities with the government, uh, governors, magistrates, and so on. That's kind of the authorities he's talking about here. How countercultural is that for Christians in that setting on Crete uh, to be subject to rulers and authorities? The Romans, they are to be obedient to. Consider even with a tyrannical empire that all their friends, all their neighbours absolutely hated and wanted to overthrow, Christians are to be subject to the Romans, to be obedient. Now, there's all sorts of important questions and uh, issues we want to explore. What kind of exceptions do you have to this sort of obedience? Uh, after all, we may well know that Roman emperors often demanded that they be worshipped like gods, which Christians are clearly not to do. That's not obedience to that sort of degree. In our case, we have another sort of uh, set of thinking to do as well. That is, we have to think carefully about what it means to submit to government authority where we can also participate in voting them out if we don't like how they're doing their job. That is, what does it mean to participate in that process in a way that honours God and, importantly, shows respect to those who rule over us? Lots of things to sort through, but the bottom line here is Christians are to be model citizens, uh, not just when we like it. Model citizens, not just when we like it. Paul's not here saying, how great is the Emperor Nero? Isn't it great doing things his way? It's kind of regardless of how good Nero is or isn't. Be subject to him. So the real test of whether we're actually obedient is when we're told to do something we don't like. Uh, it's very easy to obey if you agree it's a good thing. Speed limits. Uh, when we know there's no speed camera. Uh, taxes we owe if we know there's ways around the letter of the law. Uh, perhaps the most irritating thing for some of us is getting the right permits and approvals from the local council, which just feels like a waste of time. In fact, as soon as we talk about being obedient to those in our government, you might, like me, have the first thought, yeah, but what are the limits? What are the exceptions? 
It's an important question, and I think it's a fair question, but if that's our first question, I wonder whether it's possible that we just have a problem with authority. If that's our first question, do we just have a problem with authority? Are we only happy doing as we're told as long as we agree with it? Are we actually the authority at that point? Now, if we're followers of Jesus at that point, we're going to need to repent of that and actually work really hard on that attitude. Uh, That's going to be a problem for us uh, if we are to be people who live under God's authority, isn't it? See, if we have that default reaction, as I think many do, to defy all authority, to subvert authority, get around it, we're making ourselves the ultimate authority, and that means not only will we actually poor examples of citizens, we're very likely going to come to treat God's authority in much the same way. See, obedience, when you think about it like that, it does take true humility, doesn't it? Recognising that we're not the centre of the universe. It takes true humility. Now, Paul has a much broader concern here than those who just uh, rule and govern. Have a look again at the end of verse 1. Paul says, Be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. It's very broad, isn't it? He's talking about the world around us, doing whatever good we can and being good to everyone we can. So it's not just the model citizen here, it's the model neighbour, the model employee, the model neighbour. Uh, the contributor on the footy club and the great helpful, helpful person on the school council. Uh, last week we heard from Mimi and the uh, Green team who went down to help out with the Schoolies Festival, uh, serving and loving uh, school leavers, uh, helping them keep safe and, and yeah, just looking after them through a pretty chaotic weekend. Uh, that festival was something that Christians have been running for the last 20 years or so and uh, here in South Australia. Uh, and I think there's a great kind of culture where the Green team are setting out to be model citizens to be the model party hosts for the schoolies. Um, They've seen an opportunity to go and serve and love the wider world, and they've gone, serving, loving, being gentle, being considerate, having plenty of good things to do. I think schoolies is a great example of what Paul is reminding us to be doing here. Not withdrawing from the mess of the world around us, but going, getting in there, uh, getting our hands dirty, as it were, cleaning up. Uh, helping to care for others, being gentle, being kind, being ready uh, to do whatever is good. Whether it's being involved with something like the Green Team or uh, volunteering with great groups like Marian Life uh, just down the road, um, they have many Christians involved in loving and serving and doing what is good in uh, this community around us. Uh, there are no shortage of things, good things for Christians to sign up and to be more involved in. Uh, but you realise here it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just signing up for things. I think what we're seeing here is being ready, uh, being ready wherever God has placed us to do good things. Those good things include speaking well of people, not to slander, to be considerate, to be gentle, verse 2. We're to do good wherever God has placed us. Now, not surprisingly, as a pastor, I spend most of my week actually with Christians, most weeks. Um, my current workplace is made up with some of the loveliest and most considerate people you'll ever meet, so being countercultural there is a bit of a challenge. Um, uh, but my first job out of uni for a couple of years was working in a factory that made bricks. Uh, a great spot. I got to work with some hard-working and very straightforward and straight-shooting people, uh, not gentle people. Uh, I wouldn't call them considerate, usually. And slander, the word Paul uses here, slander, well, if that's just talking badly about someone when they're not in the room, well, that was just half the course. That was the average meeting. Now, I didn't always uh, go heaps well standing out as a Christian. Uh, sometimes I did. Uh, but there's so many things that I wish I did differently, to stand out more, to do good in that place. I, I just found out how hard it can be 
to not be caught up in the workplace culture. It's hard. It's hard to not join in the complaints and negativity around people who are doing a terrible job. It's hard not to be harsh when people aren't doing what they should. It's hard to not be so caught up in the job I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not stopping to actually see how someone's going when I'm working with them. But the thing is, people really do notice. People really do notice when we live and we work differently. So be, be encouraged to keep at it. Keep going. Uh, in your workplaces, in your schools, or, or your uni cohorts, in your mum's group, or your soccer club, or your drama groups, whatever it is, perhaps now is a good time to pause and take stock and just consider how you can change or grow in being gentle or being considerate and doing good to all where God has placed you. And just keep at it. Keep growing in those ways. There was a time when uh, calling Christians do-gooders was a kind of a way to mock us and uh, make us feel silly. Uh, for those old enough to remember Ned Flanders and The Simpsons, uh, you might be familiar with that kind of do-gooder, kind of uh, silly, ridiculed, kind of holier-than-thou Christian. I think times have changed a fair bit since Ned Flanders first appeared on the screens in the 90s. I, I think there's now such an absence of genuine kindness, and I think perhaps increasingly so, kindness is becoming less of a feature in our culture. So when someone receives or witnesses genuine care, uh, gentleness and kindness, it makes an impact. And it makes the good news of Jesus beautiful and attractive to those around us. In a post-Christian world, being a humble do-gooder will get noticed more and more. And I say that not just as a, as a vibe, I think uh, it's not just a theory. Paul's strategy that he's laying out for us in this letter to, to reshape churches, to shape families and communities uh, with the gospel, history tells us this actually works. Um, I've been listening to an audio book called Dominion, The Making of the Modern World, uh, The Making of the Western World. It's by a historian called Tom Hollands. Uh, Tom isn't a Christian, I don't think, but he's fascinated, uh, just enthralled by the way, a tiny group who broke away from Judaism. Um, they set out to worship a seemingly failed rabbi who was crucified by the Romans. This first group of Christians, they started something that's become not just a major world religion, but Tom Hollands recognised, like many have, that Christianity has completely changed the course of history. It's shaped the world so profoundly that we hardly even realise the impact that Christianity's had on everything. It's become basically the air we breathe and we don't even notice. How did this come to be? That's kind of the question Tom Holland sets out with, and it's a fascinating book, because as a historian, it's not at all obvious that Christianity should have achieved what it has as a world religion. How could it have had this outrageous impact? One of the things, perhaps one of the main things that Tom Holland has noticed is he describes how in the ancient world, uh, in the world of the Greeks and the Romans, they despised people who were poor and weak. Slaves, women, children, uh, orphans were abandoned left, right and centre. There was no value on that kind of life. Charity wasn't really a thing. It hardly existed. After all, why would it? Uh, why would you waste your energy or your money on those the gods have despised? You might have heard uh, how the Emperor Constantine became a Christian around AD 312. Um, very, very famous conversion, sort of really did change the course of history from there. What's interesting is his grandson, uh, also an emperor, Julian. Uh, Julian, as an emperor, he hated Christianity. Uh, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he did everything he could to turn the Roman Empire back to the old gods. He uh, propped up all the philosophers who hated Christians. Tom Holland and many others recognise that Christians, though, 
have at that point become so unique and so noted for their unique care for the weak, their love for the poor, for the way they looked after abandoned babies, the people just flocked to Christ. They were countercultural. Now, back then, normal Christians, people like you and I, meeting in rooms around Rome, the Roman Empire, just going about their normal life, submitting to the authorities, being ready to do good, they changed the course of the world for thousands of years because they've been shaped by the gospel. For us, uh, Christians are no longer unique in the way we care for the poor or the weak. Um, We can be thankful for the way that Christianity has really shaped our culture around those sorts of things. And so in a world that does still, though, overflow with slander, with harshness, with self-centeredness, in a culture where loneliness is basically an epidemic, uh, Christians will always stand out uh, when we're ready to do good. We'll make the good news about Jesus beautiful to those who are desperate for something better. In verses 3 to 7, uh, Paul then uh, lays out uh, the reason we should live this way. He's given us a way to live, but then verse 3 to 7, he gives us the reason. Uh, and these four verses here, I think, are some of the clearest we have in the Bible about what God has done for us in Jesus. And so for those who are new here, for those who are new or newish to Jesus or, or to church, um, welcome. Uh, these, three, these four verses, uh, verses 3 to 7, I reckon are a great summary of what Christians hold near and dear. It's a great summary of the Bible. Uh, And today I'm going to be walking us through, best I can, uh, just in a bit of detail, but this is such a rich and dense section, I encourage you to keep coming back. We're really only skimming through uh, the surface. Uh, It'd be a great passage to keep coming back to and keep thinking through, if this isn't new to you especially. So Paul starts explaining why our lives should look like this uh, by, first in verse 3, explaining what we were like before God reached out to us. Have a look at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. One of the obvious things we notice with this verse is if we're going to go out to do good things for others, we can't be doing it in a way that feels morally superior to them, can it? This describes us before God changed us. We were foolish, unable to understand who God is, what He's like. And we disobediently tried our hardest to not live under His authority, We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. There's a real irony here, actually, for us in the 21st century, where, like, if you think about what freedom is usually uh, thought of, uh, the essence of freedom is usually referred to um, being able to chase after your own passions. To be free is to be, you know, true to yourself, look in, see what your heart wants, and then freedom allows us to go after it and get it, whatever it is. Oppression is anything that stops us achieving our passions, our pleasures. So the irony here is that being driven from within towards our pleasures and passions is actually, as Paul describes it, not freedom, it's being enslaved, it's being deceived. Just like Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden, the serpent told them they could disobey God and eat the fruit and they would be just like God, they would be free. They sought to be free of God's rule but were deceived because even if it looks like it, there is no freedom outside of God's rule. There is no freedom outside of God's rule. Instead, we actually become enslaved to the things we think are going to free us. They control us. Uh, We're driven by fear of losing them or or fear that we just can't live without those things we're chasing. So Paul goes on, the second half of verse 3. We lived in malice and being hated. uh, Sorry, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We, and that's, you know, Paul and Titus are included in this as well. uh, We, um, to put it bluntly, we're antisocial. Uh, we weren't worth loving. 
So even uh, the loveliest of people can be driven by envy or harbour. They can harbour intense hatred, actually, and just not show it. They can be very lovely on the surface, but within, there's something terrible often going on. Verse 4, but, but, antisocial, malicious though we were, God came to us and he loved us. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. As he talks here about the appearance of God's love and kindness, Paul is talking about Jesus. How God appeared to us in Jesus. The very picture, the very model of kindness and of love. Um, Jesus is so kind, isn't he? So kind that he even prayed for those who were torturing him to death uh, out of malice and hate. Jesus is the picture of kindness. Do you think of God as kind? Of all the ways we can describe God, think about God, we can sometimes miss that, I think. His kindness, uh, but it's so crucial. So have a look. He, he saved us not because he has to. It's not his job to save us. Because he's kind, because he's loving, he didn't sit back in his own divine holy huddle. Uh, he he came to us to save us, even though we didn't deserve it. He came to save us from being enslaved, and he saved us for eternal life. So we see this in verses five and six. Paul tells us why God saved us. Verse five. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's a really humbling thing to come to terms with, isn't it? That we needed saving, we didn't deserve it, but God did it anyway because of his incredible kindness and his mercy. So that's why God saved us. He saved us because of his mercy, but how does God save us? How does God save us? He goes on the second half of verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Now, just a quick pause. Isn't that a great picture of the Holy Trinity at work? Uh, Father, Son and Spirit, each at work uh, in different ways to save us, working together. The Father saves us by the Spirit, poured out through the Son. It's a wonderful picture of God saving us, Father, Spirit, Son. To focus, though, like Paul does for a moment on the Holy Spirit here, we see he washes us. It's a washing of rebirth and renewal. Now, what does that mean? Uh, rebirth is all about being given new life, a new start in life. Of course, everyone uh, is born into some kind of natural family, aren't we? All of us have a natural earthly family. Uh, but to save us, the Spirit gives us new life. He gives us new birth into a spiritual family. He brings us alive when we were spiritually dead. And renewal... Uh, that's everything within us being sort of reset or recreated. Uh, things like our heart, our will, our conscience, the things we love, the things we desire. The Holy Spirit will give us a new will. It does give us a new will, new heart, new conscience to care about and love what God loves. So, uh, what we've seen, that's why God saves, because of His mercy. That's how God saves, through the Holy Spirit poured out by Jesus, renewing us, changing us. And then verse 7 tells us the outcome of being saved. Verse 7 tells us the outcome. First, we're justified by His grace. We're justified by His grace. Now, there's a word we don't use much in day-to-day -day life. When was the last time you used the word justified in a sentence? It's not a word we use much, but I would say it's the only thing that really matters about you and I. Are we justified or not? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. With eternity on the line... Are you justified? Because that's how God will judge us. Those who are justified, those who God says are righteous, innocent, free of guilt, 
and therefore free of judgment, those who are justified. Those who are not justified are guilty before God, their maker and their judge. They face his just judgment and an attorney being cast out from his blessing. It's so critical to see God justifies us. We don't do it ourselves. God justifies us by his grace. It's not us having to justify our lives to him. He gives it as a gift. He actually gives us the righteousness of Jesus to be our own. We don't do anything. It doesn't matter how many good things we do. We don't do anything to be justified. God's grace does all that work. The grace of God that appeared to us in Jesus. So there's the first outcome of being saved, uh, being justified. The second flows from it again in verse 7. Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Isn't that great? Eternal life isn't a maybe. It's not a vague hope for those who trust in Jesus. It's a sure hope. Because we're already justified by his grace, we are sure to inherit eternal life. The key thing about this is, because we are looking forward to that eternal life, think about, back to what we sort of started with, about doing good. It's impossible, to, it, sorry, it's possible, knowing we have eternal life to look forward to, it's possible to give up things for ourselves so we can do things for others. Giving up time, energy, money, because this life is not all there is, we can do that. Instead of chasing our own pleasures and passions now because this life is all there is, we realise we can give those things away freely knowing there's so much more still to come. So we're not missing out as we do good things for others. Paul in these wonderful, wonderful verses is not just giving us a great reminder of God's incredible mercy to us and uh, sort of saying, therefore, he's merciful, therefore go and live this way. That's definitely a big part of it. The other thing you see in these verses, though, is he's focusing on God taking initiative. It's a theme all through there, isn't it? God takes initiative. God didn't sit back and just let us be ourselves. He didn't just uh, retreat into his holy huddle. He came out to us, to the outsider, the antisocial. God does good things for us, is the point. The way God has done these things for us is a model for how Christians are to therefore go and do likewise. And so, verse 8, Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying. That's what he's just said. Uh, he's going back to verses 4 to 7. This is a trustworthy saying. You can build your life around this. There's nothing truer. He goes on, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Of all the goals you could set for yourself in life, um, isn't this a great one? What a great goal to be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Key word here, I think, is being careful, uh, considered, I think, careful, considered. Uh, not just making it up as we go along and hoping we'll kind of stumble into it all the way, although that's part of it, perhaps. I think it also means not saying yes to every good thing that comes along, but thinking selectively about what are the best things I can be doing, and devoting ourselves, pouring ourselves out into those things. So what does this look like? Uh, what does this mean for us here in Tons in, at Tonsley? Uh, to be devoting ourselves to what is truly good. A couple thoughts. Uh, first, if we're devoted to doing good, it means it's actually a priority for us. Uh, we actually do set out to do that, not just assume it will happen one day, but make it a priority to try and do good. Keeping an eye out for opportunities to show love and kindness and generosity for others, and actually praying for those opportunities and taking them when they come. That's, of course, going to look extremely different uh, for all of us we'll be, uh, in all kinds of situations in life where this will play out. Um, some will have capacity to do things like schoolies and have a heart to do that. Others won't. That's okay. 
Others may be able to help out volunteering at Marian Life in all sorts of ways. Others won't. But it might be far more general for us as well uh, in the way you're already doing these things. Uh, Keeping an eye out for those in the workplace who are going through a really hard time. Showing them love and gentleness. Or showing great patience to those who aren't really pulling their weight on your team at work or in your uni group assignment. Even more than that, and this is a big one for me personally, and I've been challenged by this, um, if we're to be devoted to doing good for those outside of church doors, outside of our own families, we actually need to spend time with them, don't we? Uh, We need to take care we don't become isolated from the world around us. We do have a danger in a wonderful church full of incredible people of becoming a bit like a Christian bubble. We could spend all of our hours just hanging out with each other. And it's easy and it's great, but we don't want to become a holy huddle. So it takes careful devotion to look out, to look around, prayerfully being aware of good works God has already prepared for us to do, actually. What I mentioned here, it's very important. Uh, we won't be seeing people saved simply by seeing them loved and, uh, and cared for. They also need to hear about Jesus, uh, about the salvation we have in him. But it's always good to remember those two things so often go hand in hand, don't they? Loving people, doing good things for them, and sharing about God's love. We want to be careful not to separate those two things too much. So there are many things we can be filling our lives up with, uh, many groups and causes uh, we can be involved in. Especially as we eye off uh, the end of this year and the start of another one, um, it's worth careful, thoughtful prayer. Are we seeking out and devoting ourselves to opportunities to do good? Notice how Paul describes a life that is devoted to that, showing amazing love to others. Have a look at verse 8 again. Be careful to devote yourselves, uh, that is, to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. When he says profitable, he's not talking about our bank accounts or our self-esteem. He's saying it's profitable in the sense that it's not a waste of time. It's the best use of our life. Have a look again at uh, verse 14, a similar idea. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and to not live unproductive lives. Uh, When I meet Jesus face to face one day, uh, wouldn't it be great if he was to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You've lived by my grace a profitable and productive life. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, God has prepared many good works for us to do as his people. And by by devoting ourselves to doing what is good, seeking those opportunities to love and extend God's kindness, we are trusting that God is making the best use of our life there is, bringing Him glory, helping others see and know how great He truly is. So let's pray that He would help us do these things. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You so much, so much for Your kindness. We thank You for Your love and Your mercy that You've shown us that even though we were foolish, that we were disobedient, We thank you that even still, you saved us. So please help us. Please help us be really carefully devoted, prayerfully devoted to doing what is good. Help us to be model citizens and good neighbours, great colleagues, students, employees. Help us be alert and prepared for what good things you might lead us into. Help us be faithful in following through with them. And so we ask you would help the world around us come to see what a great God you are kind and merciful. And so help us live lives that are profitable and productive in your service. Amen.